I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Okay, you've got 60 seconds to plan the perfect night. Are you mixing up bullet bourbon old fashions by the fire? Sipping kettle one martinis at a house party? Or toasting Don Julio Reposado while planning a tropical vow renewal for your dogs. The answer is yes. Because with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery, you can find the right drink for any occasion. Sending a gift to family, friends, or coworkers. Hosting an ugly sweater party. Restocking your bar. You name it and you can find the drinks for it on Drizzly. Then get them delivered to your or their door. Not sure what to get? Build your own gift registry to get the gifts you want. Or take a guided gifting quiz to make sure everyone on your list gets what they want. So, what's it gonna be? Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com to choose your drinks today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. That's cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Motts. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero? or the villain. On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're professional unprofessional, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. A cash recommends. 
You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Jimmy, first of all, oh my God, just seeing you there <laughs> brings back so many <laughs> wonderful memories for me. And this is an absolute pleasure to see you again and to talk to you. So thank you for making the time. Um, oh. You have a fascinating, incredible life. And um, I don't know, I've been doing the research to this and I wish I knew all that I know now about you. I wish I knew it <laughs> back then to really be able to appreciate what you've lived in your life. And that is just amazing. Now, one of the most, um, well, it was one of the most fascinating things for me to find out that you are a Seminole, as it's called, is yes. a, well, maybe you should tell me what it is actually. Actually, you were born in Florida to yes. um, a father who was a Seminole preacher. Can you explain what Seminole is? Okay, the Seminoles uh, was an Indian tribe, uh, still is, uh, who uh, I think originated a little bit up in, in the north of, uh, of the eastern side of the United States from Georgia and that uh, area of, uh, of the US. Uh, and uh, during the time of uh, slavery, black slavery in America, uh, the, the, there were bonds that were struck between local Indian tribes and the black community, uh, escaped slaves who were trying to uh, obviously uh, uh, gain their freedom and, and find some protection in that freedom. Uh, and so the, the, there was a big, historically, there was a huge uh, association between Indian tribes in America and black people, uh, especially from that period when the uh, all the oppression that was going on with Indians in America, the, the Native American Indians and Black people, uh, they sort of uh, found a common ground to, to help to uh, uh, save each other, if you will. So that is the uh, uh, basis of the association by which my grandfather, uh, uh, who was in fact Black Seminole, they, you know, Seminoles and Blacks. Uh, we say uh, integrated, married, and uh, offspring, uh, so forth. So my father would have been, my grandfather, sorry, would have been called a, a Black Seminole, Black Seminole Indian. So tell me about the community itself, because in Florida, there was a, a, a large grouping of Seminoles. And I read that yep. in, in, you know, earlier times, when the Spanish were fighting the, the, the US, they yes. incorporated, in a sense, the Seminole community uh, only to help them fight, I presume. You know, I mean, history yes. is so awful when you know yes. when you read about it. Uh, and they had a common, and, a common cause, yeah. Common yeah, cause. they had a common cause, and also they had then a common religion because the Seminoles were then Catholic, or they entered the Catholic uh, religion because of that. I think. Yes. So, yes. Um, can you tell me about what it was like growing up in in that community? What what it was about? What was different about it? You know, in sort of my terms. What would have been different? Um, it was a very small community, very close knit community. Uh, we were uh, uh, a black family. There were very few black families in this in this town where I was born and raised. Uh, so we were very uh, sort of isolated in, in in that sense of the word. Uh, my my memories of childhood were uh, uh, yeah you you you. You did your work. You you did. You went to school. You did your things. But it was a very 
insulated community because there was a lot of uh, not so nice uh, business going on around uh, in terms of violence and so forth. We heard stories. I had incidents within my own family of uh, people being uh, 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 abused, mistreated, and so forth. I uh, experienced it myself. Um, not would I, I survived it, but the fact of survival uh, is is something that uh, it's a healing process that never ends. So, uh, in a capsule, yes, I was uh, uh, in this situation, which I was uh, very anxious to get out of from a very early age, <laughs> if you can imagine. <laughs> And so uh, I was doing everything I could to try and uh, expedite that process to get to get out as quick as I could. Uh, family and everything, uh, uh, with all due respect to that, uh, uh, it, it really was uh, a sense of, uh, yeah, to survive, you're going to have to get out of here. And uh, that was uh, my motivation. It was, I was also... Out of there I Sorry, was out it was... there like a like like a like a like a like, like a cannon shot, you know. <laughs> Boom! I was gone. <laughs> First chance I got. <laughs> it was a matriarchal society, wasn't it? That's what I read today. That it was a, a matriarchal society, and that um, you were born into the clan of the mother. Yes. Um, do you know That's... what clan you were? Oh, uh, we. <laughs> Well, no, not so much. I mean, in hindsight, I, 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 I gather more than I ever knew, obviously, while I was there in that experience. Uh, hindsight has taught me many, many uh, lessons, uh, life lessons, if you will, uh, that, 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 that came from that uh, experience. But uh, in terms of clans and so forth, we were, we were just sticking together the best we could. The, 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 if there was a clan, it was in the church. You know, my grandfather was a preacher. Uh, we were in church sort of six, seven days a week or nights a week, you know, and some sort of church uh, uh, function going on. And that was as historical uh, is the case with most uh, uh, people of that time of my color, of my, my, my race. Uh, we were, uh, the church was the, 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 the saving ground. That was the, that was the safe place to be. So when later on you had these stories about churches being burned and bombed and so forth, it was a direct hit on the, the clan, if you will. That, that, was, the that was a sacred place where uh, anybody thought they could gather together, feel protected, feel as though they were protecting each other to, uh, to, to, yeah, to get beyond this situation. Yeah, so. I mean, you mentioned, uh, uh that you were in church a number of evenings a week or five times a week or something like that. I presume yeah. this was also a church where there was gospel music or where there was music and a church where there was singing or was, or I mean, I'm just imagining this in my head. Is that, is that correct? Oh. And that's also a place obviously where, you, you know, you could express yourself. Absolutely. Anybody who had anything to say about their daily life or, 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 or daily experiences, good, bad, indifferent, uh, that was an opportunity to do that in church. Uh, you could stand up and say, oh, this happened to me to, uh, yesterday at school, and uh, I want to talk about it because I have, uh, it, 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 it's, it's left scars or whatever. But was, was there singing in church? Absolutely. That uh, was could you tell me about that? Okay. Uh, in those days, gospel music 
was uh, 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 such an integral part, of course, of being in church. There were uh, 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 gospel groups coming around. Uh, ooh, what can I uh, can think of? Uh, Rosetta Tharp names. If if you go back and have a look, you'll see uh, these names as being the foundation of gospel music as we know it. Uh, Rosetta Tharp, uh, uh, harmony groups like. Uh, the, the five blind boys and all of these uh, groups who were coming through to to to, to help knit this unit, the, the community together were uh, arriving at our church and any on any given Sunday in our church we would have any one of maybe two or three of these groups standing up to perform with us uh, for us with a guitar maybe a little amplifier and five amazing voices singing harmony that's 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 where my uh that's the root of my my my, my uh, uh dreams about singing for for from the very beginning is that what did you actually perform there as well though did you actually you know in in a group of in the gospel choir or whatever what did you actually perform there in front of people was that the first time for you to be to perform we we braved it and a uh, couple of cousins and i decided that we're going to get up in the, in the church on the following Sunday and sing a couple of songs. Yeah. And so we would listen to the radio because that was our, our only outlet really to uh, 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 what was going on in the musical world, gospel or otherwise. Uh, so we, we, we'd get in the corners of at school or wherever and get a little harmony thing going. do bo do bo bo do bo do bo do bo do bo and these things, you know, the that music is rooted in gospel. That whole concept of doo-wop music is rooted in gospel. And that's what uh, we picked up on at a very early, early age. And I was able to uh, uh, stand up with the, in the confidence of my, my cousins, <laughs> you know, we braved each other up, so to speak. And uh, we, we'd get up on Sunday and uh, Every opportunity we got, we get up and sing. And uh, that was how it began, you know, that's how we started. Music provides an escape um, for a lot of people in their youth. I mean, uh, yes. you, you know, your situation is a lot different to when I was brought up, but music provided a massive escape to me as someone who sort of wanted to just get away from my childhood, wanted to get away from what I felt my situation was back then. I look at it differently today, obviously. And it, and it was a wonderful escape. So was this radio, in effect, the means to escape your own situation in your own world in the beginning? It was like, yeah, it was like Alice through the looking glass, or if you want to call it. It was my, that I, my aunt, an aunt of mine, my mother's sister, gave me for Christmas a little transistor radio, red sort of cranberry red radio. I can see it now with my eyes wide open. <laughs> uh, and, and, and that listening to this uh, 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 radio late at night when I should have been asleep, my grandmother shouting at me, turn that thing off and go to sleep. You know, you got school first thing in the morning. That, that kind of business was going on. And I would, uh, th this little radio was my, it was my periscope, if you will, to the outside world. All, everything came, in through that radio and in my dreams, everything went out back out through this radio because uh, it shone a light on what was possible uh, from for one hour, Steve, one hour on any given night, 
around 11 o'clock in Florida, 11 o'clock at night, you, 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 you're able to tune into this one station. And for that one hour, they played R&B music. They played a, 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 a mixture of gospel and R&B and, and, and so forth. And it was my, uh, it, I knew what I wanted to be from that moment. So yeah, it was my escape. It was my route out. It was the cannon that shot me out like a cannonball. <laughs> I mean, there were other things that happened before you actually left, but mm -hmm. you also learned to play the trumpet, didn't you? How did that come about? Very quickly, my cousin, uh, my girl cousin, uh, just a few years older than I, arrived back from school one day, got off the school bus with this little case in her hand, and I said, what's that? She opened it up. And it was like, woof, excuse my expression, it was like opening up a coffin because the, the inside of this case was like the kind of material that you should see inside of a coffin. And I jumped back for a second and go, oh, I'm not sure I want to touch this thing. What is it? She, it was a cornet, which uh, a smaller version of a trumpet, if you will. And uh, she had picked it up at school. Uh, bandmaster told her, yes, you can learn to play this instrument if any of your uh, cousins or so forth would like to come in and have a look, they, we can get them into the music system in the school. So that was my beginning. I was hooked. I uh, went in the, into the band room the next day and uh, 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 arrived back home with this case. <laughs> My grandmother, I took it out in the backyard and started uh, making this terrible noise with it, of course. And uh, my grandmother said, you will take that thing back tomorrow and uh, not bring it back again. <laughs> it's too much noise. You know, mama, grandma, I'm going to play it outside. It's OK. Don't worry. No, no. And I was I think uh, if anything, uh, Steve, it was uh, it gave me a sense of motivation. It gave me my grandmother telling me. You can't do that was my motivation to, to prove that I was going to do it and, 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 and it was going to be something that uh, I hung on to. So um, in that sense of the word, in hindsight, once again, it was a wonderful moment for me because I proved something to myself and I think maybe to my grandmother that, uh, yeah, if you want something and you stay with it, then uh, you'll gain some respect for doing that. So. Uh, how much pressure did you have on you to 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 have an education and actually not just sort of go straight in like a cannonball into the world of music? <laughs> oh, it was total. Uh, uh, it was not a case of uh, this is what I want to do. And, uh, you know, sod school, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do music. It, it didn't work that way. I had to uh, adhere to the fact that uh, my parents were raising me uh, and, and, and I had to adhere to the policies, you know, the, the rules, the ground rules. It said, uh, you'll finish high school, you'll go to college, your university, and you'll get some, uh, some professional, uh, uh, what, whatever you call, uh, education under your belt. And then if you decide that uh, after that, you want to go and uh, uh, risk having some sort of a musical thing as a sideline, then fine. But first thing you're going to do is get yourself a good education because uh, that's what's going to see you through this world. So I had to do that. I stayed at university for a couple of years, reached a point when I said, I ain't going to do this no more. <laughs> and, 
and I stopped doing it. I went on the road with a band. So uh, at least I I made the effort to to adhere to my 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 folks' uh, wishes in terms of an education, and I got that under my belt, and I'm glad for that. So tell me about this period that you went on on tour with a band, because if it was your first band, what were you doing in the band? And also, where did you go and what was the reaction to that band? Okay, um, this band uh, formed in Columbus, Ohio. That's where I finished uh, high school and a couple of years of university. Uh, I hooked up with uh, some local guys who were traveling a lot. One guy had a, a band. He had traveled a lot around the East Coast of America, up into Canada, etc. And uh, he said to me, uh, "I hear you. Uh, I hear you singing, and I hear you playing a little bit of trumpet. And uh, come down and, and let's talk about uh, uh, maybe joining the band." This guy had a local rec- reputation of uh, yeah, some degree of success, you know. So that was an opportunity. I went down. We talked. He came over to my house. We talked. We drove around in the car and went to went for hamburgers and things, <laughs> French fries, all of that, <laughs> and, uh, and and ended up uh, with me joining the band. The first, uh, I think, the first traveling we did was up to Boston. Boston, then up to Canada, traveling around up and down that side of the East Coast of America, and uh, that was my introduction. Uh, one sweet story for me, my memory uh, uh, tells me that uh, most of the time in that first band, I was the guy st- standing in the background playing the trumpet. And the guy or the lady, whatever, was out front on the microphone singing was the one who was getting all the attention. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so I went, whoa, uh, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I, I should like sort of nudge myself to the front of this band and so and get my get my hands on the microphone <laughs> so I, it, it's interesting because maybe not the best analogy but when i see now photographs of Jimi hendrix when he was playing guitar way in the back for the isley brothers and with uh, with uh, uh, little richard and all of these guys you think well uh, what would not have happened if he'd stayed back there being uh, uh, satisfied with being uh, the guy back in the shadows in the background with somebody else out front doing the business, you know? So yeah, it was a moment, it was a moment of, 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 of great revelation for me that first opportunity on the road because I got to see what was capable, what was possible and build some confidence as a result, you know, wonderful. It was also in an era of pre-civil rights or around that period where civil rights yeah. Uh, were being finally talked about and it must have been difficult being on the road and um, I can't imagine obviously how you must have been treated sometimes or how it must have been as as a, a black person in that period. So along with these sort of wonderful highlights and a wonderful process, I, I imagine there's also um, a sort of painful memory uh, attached to it as well. Could you tell me a little bit about what it was like back then? I can give you a for instance, uh, Steve. Um, I remember an occasion when uh, I was just, I think, still at university, still trying to get my find my feet in in, in doing music for 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 
for real for 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 for, for a career and uh we were we we had driven a car we got in a car five of us we were looking for a record deal we were trying to get signed to a record company cincinnati ohio was the home of uh, a record label called king records king records had at that time james brown and the famous flames that was before james brown became the james brown that we associate his name with now and his face with now we were <clears throat> we'd driven up to cincinnati had a meeting with this uh some people in this record company king's king records and uh we were waiting for an outcome few days we got no no uh, no no uh, reply from our audition if you will the audition by the way was just a simple version of, of standing at reception <laughs> in king at king records just boring the hell out of the receptionist singing one song after another all that business you know until she's okay okay you can go in and see the nr guy fighter just leave me alone you know that kind of uh anyway <laughs> a quick aside but uh the point was that uh, uh, uh we, we we did this audition if you will and uh, uh got no reply we're sitting around we're sleeping in the car basically waiting for some kind of word back uh, to say yeah come back or no forget it whatever and so while we're waiting uh uh uh, uh what happens i'm we're sleeping in the car the driver of the car we call him big boy because that 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 was his nickname he was the not such a great singer, but he had a car, you know, <laughs> so that's why he was in the band in the first place. <laughs> so big boy uh, 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 took it upon himself to go out uh, looking for something we knew nothing about until he arrived back and said, hey, guys, we got a flat tire and uh, I went to try and find a tire, uh, but I didn't find one. We, we got a problem about 15 minutes later. While we're scratching our heads, wondering what we're going to do about this situation we're in, a man arrives, a redneck, if you will, <laughs> with a gun. And we look up and this guy has got the gun that just resting on the on the windscreen of the of our car. Saying, everybody out of the car. Uh you tried to Obviously, our man Big Boy had uh, tried to to nick a tire because we had no money, we, to nick a tire so we could get a spare onto the car and get out as quick as we could. The long and short of the story was uh, we all wound up uh, uh, bef before the uh, uh, the local police, trying to get some uh, 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 well, trying to make some sense out of this situation because four out of the five of us knew nothing about this thing having happened in the first place. But the fact that this man saw no other recourse than to arrive at our car and we're sleeping and put aim his, the barrel of his gun at the windscreen of our car and say, well, uh, I, 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 I make a citizen's arrest. You're all under arrest for trying to steal from my, uh, my junkyard or whatever it was, you know, so. That kind of situation was not, it was no, it was not, it was sad news, but not big news. Uh, the kind of thing that occurred quite often. So, yeah.
Tell me about when you recorded your first, you, you know, when you actually recorded your first track. I think it was um, Susie's Gone, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> now, I listened to that today. I'll tell you what struck me about it, which is really interesting. It was almost like a misuse of your voice because your voice has this amazing, wonderful tonal quality. And then this explosion of voice can come out, you know, like it has yeah. such an amazing depth and such a range. And Thank that you. song sort of didn't use that range. It was like, was it something that was just, you know, given to you, you're going to sing this, this is going to be your first record? Pretty much. You pretty much nailed it. Uh, it was um, for a naive guy like me, uh, just trying to find his feet and uh, uh, and have a career. Uh, you, 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 you grabbed at whatever straws you could. Uh, in hindsight, uh, well, you make mistakes. You you make bad decisions about the the songs that you choose. And I was always uh, hoping and praying to get myself in a position where I could write songs uh, to, to 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 alleviate that pressure of where's the song going to come from, you know. Uh, and uh, once again, it was the part of my career that I look back on now in hindsight and wish that I'd uh, earlier on got my hands on a piano or guitar or something. I chose the trumpet. A trumpet is not a song for, uh, uh, an instrument for writing songs. It, it's, uh, it, it is what it is, it's a brass instrument. And in hindsight, I would have uh, learned the piano, enough basic chords, etc., to be able to, um, to express myself, put, chords together, write songs and get that together. That didn't come to much later, much later. Yeah, you say that, but that Jimmy Radcliffe song that you recorded, You're Mine, You Are Mine, yeah. this this one. I mean, that has, that really expresses, you know, it shows the power of your voice. And I, I listened to that this morning and I was thinking, wow, that is a great song. So I think there are, you know, like <laughs> you, you say as sort of mistakes. I don't think, I think there are only experiences in life and not really mistakes that, that yeah. take you on a, some form of a journey. And that song, I thought that, was, that song was wonderful and it really, um, you know, showed the potential in, uh, of your voice. Well, thank you, Steve. And for, uh, especially for uh, pointing out the fact, and it is a fact, it, there's no such thing as a mistake. It's what you do after it. <laughs> it's what you do after that thing that you didn't feel so good about. That's what important. That's that's the important thing. Miles Davis put it very well. He said, "There's not just, no such thing as a bad note. It's only the note that you play after it <laughs> you know, that corrects itself and makes what you did before sound great because it's uh, there's cohesion, so forth. So you're right. You're right about that. Thank you." The 60s seemed to be an era where you were finding yourself musically um, and finding your, your sort of route through uh, this world, in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And you joined up, and I hope I get the name right, with Carl Sally, who was a, yes. a famous saxo saxophonist and had yes. a band. Um, I presume then you were the trumpeter in that band? or yes, a trumpeter correct. in that band. Can you tell Big me about trumpet. that experience and what it what it gave you as a as a performer to be in something like that? Well, Carl Sally's band was in fact the band that I traveled from Columbus, Ohio up to Boston and into Canada with. And uh, we did uh, gigs around New York. We played some, uh, at the time, pretty f uh, famous venues in New York City. There was a place called Small's Paradise, which is a, a 
uh, had begun like a kind of uh, a place with big R&B reviews, big chorus line of dances, etc. But they'd also do things like uh, uh, small uh, jazz quartets and, 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 and the kind of music that we were doing with Carl Sally, which was covers of R&B stuff little bit of uh, uh, the commercial side of jazz. And, 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 and there I was, as I was saying to you before, I was playing the trumpet mainly. Uh, we had two lady singers out front. And I, it was at that, that particular point in time that I pulled the two ladies aside one night and said, hey, look, we need to do something together because, uh, you know, I got this idea for some, for some vocals and we can share and we can do it and blah, 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 and so forth. And that was, uh, that was a very uh, crucial time for me because it was me moving out of being uh, noted as a trumpet player in the back to a guy who could come up front and, and, and grab the microphone and sing a few tunes as well. So that was crucial for me. It was a, it was a crossroads. Yeah. How was that first experience then? You know, you say these two ladies, you, you talked to them and said, hey, you know, I can, I should be there too, or I can do that too, and we should do <laughs> something together. I mean, you know, people aren't always that open. They're sort of like saying, oh, well, hang on a minute, this is mine, this yeah, is my exactly. area, keep out. Yeah. You know, I don't know yeah. how it goes. Um, um, so was it a case of they were very open about it and, and allowed you or did you really have to sort of push your way in and how was the reaction, you know, on the first time that you performed in front of an audience with them? Okay, for a start, I was scared right out of my pants for, for, to, to, for trying to coming up with this kind of, you're sticking your neck out a yard here, you know, by, you, you, you're subject to get kicked out the band, and, and uh, that's not such a convenient thing if you're, if you're that uh, few thousand miles away from home. <laughs> so um, it, was, it was courage. Uh, it was, I was scared to do it, but I knew I had to. Uh, in the same way that I knew I had to uh, hang on to that trumpet when grandma said, uh, you can't do that no more. Uh, and this, it was the same kind of um, uh, 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 feeling that if you don't do it now, you're never gonna. And uh, that's what pushed me to the front of the bandstand. That's what made me, uh, uh, gave me the impetus to do it. And once I had done it, once I made that step, and and showed that I was I was uh, uh, qualified. <laughs> I was I was getting the result from the audience, getting kind of response from the audience that the band had maybe lacked a bit of before. Then ah, some lights started to come on, and, and and it changed my life. It changed the life of the band. The the duration of the rest of the time I was in this band, we got better shows, we got better venues to play. And, 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 and so it kind of proved itself. And that's, uh, wow, <laughs> that was a big step for me. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Now we mentioned the 60s with, with civil rights, mentioned your sort of journey through the through the 60s as it were um mm -hmm. the 60s was also a, an era of new sexual freedom freedoms of openness it had the vietnam war i mean yep. it was a, it was a very mixed bag of <laughs> everything Ooh. the 60s in some way and you were in 
a musical that essentially defines that era. And I, you know, and um, and that was Hair. Can yes. you tell me about the role you played in that musical and about being in that musical at that time? Because it caused such a reaction when it came out, didn't it? It was there was a there was a movement against Hair, and it also yes. inspired um, a movement against. Vietnam, you know, Aquarius was a song that became an anthem against Vietnam in some ways. Absolutely. So can you tell me about that? Well, okay, uh, uh, to paint the uh, uh, the backstory, a bit of backstory to my uh, arriving in here, I had been two years in the in, in, in the US military. I was two years in the in American army and uh, drafted, fought to stay out, didn't succeed, went in, did my bit for two years, came out and tried to get some traction back in my musical career. Uh, I had been fortunate enough in the army to play in the in the in the army band in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, which a wonderful place to be. Uh, the musical uh, uh, atmosphere in Atlanta, Georgia, at that time was just electric. Uh, so, uh, because of the civil rights movement, because of these things, and in spite of a lot of uh, discouragement and so forth. So that was the kind of uh, atmosphere at, uh, under which I arrived back in Boston after being in the military to, uh, to, to try and find my, my career again, get it back and, and move on. And uh, I had worked around the clubs and uh, venues around Boston, New York City, so forth, did some television and got wind of uh, auditions coming up for this musical here. Uh, oof, you know, I'd, at that point in time, the music from here was already kind of global, you know, uh, let the sunshine, all this music was already uh, uh, widely popular. And so the Boston production of Hair was the one that I was auditioning for, but I did the audition in New York City because I was there working in clubs, etc. I uh, got uh, uh, past the first, second audition, they said, okay, we may have a part for you in the Boston production as the black lead in the, in, in, in the show. So, okay, thank you. <laughs> I know Boston well. So, uh, and, and, and I had a bit of an audience there from my previous days, my, my career up to that point. So uh, it was with a lot of uh, the feelings that I had being in the military, the things that were going on while I was in the military, uh, the whole Vietnam situation, everything was going on that, at that point. Uh, and also at that point in time was Woodstock. <laughs> all of this, all, wow, what, what a, 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 an explosive, electrifying time to be alive you know and and there i was right in the middle of of all of this cultural upheaval if you will and 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 having gotten this role which defined in its way it, it was a, it was groundbreaking sort of show in its time here so uh, it was a it was a uh, wow I, I can't I can't express what it meant to me to, to, to achieve that role and to stay with that show for two years. It was one of the wonderful things in my life. So tell me what it was like being the president of the United States of Love, which was the character <laughs> of Hud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
He's. Uh, <laughs> it was. It, it, it was interesting because if you saw uh, a production of Hair in London, or you saw a production in New York, San Francisco, wherever the show uh, uh, played, and it played most major cities around the world, Sydney, Australia, everywhere. Uh, it, every one of the lead characters certainly had a different approach to how they played the character. Uh, and that's what made it interesting. Uh, we, as uh, the lead character uh, for HUD, character of HUD in, in, in Boston, I got the opportunity, uh, kind of an open ticket to fly to all the other productions around and have a look and research what my character was doing in other productions of the show. So my character, uh, I, I, I don't think I've ever come across as this uh, tough, mean, badass guy. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's never been my persona, but it's amazing what happens to you when you draw, when you start to draw on your childhood, when you start to draw on your life experiences up to that point, and what's going on in the world around you at that point in time. And it made me, uh, it brought out some meanness that I didn't, that I, I hadn't realized that I had. And it was very important to show that dark side because that's what the character is about. He's, he's many things, Hud, uh, uh, and uh, he's many things to many people. Uh, he, he's, so, so I got to see this whole prism of, what this character was and how I could bring my own life experience to it, which is what made it everything to me. It was wonderful. Tell me how you entered the stage. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> I'm, oh, I came out, uh, uh, I think the first featured number for HUD is uh, he flies out onto the stage from the darkness and, and he's, he's sort of, uh, 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 slides in on his knees like the footballers do when they've just scored a goal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, and, and he sings this song is his introductional uh, piece of music. Good Lord, I hope I can remember the melody. I can't right now. But in so many words, he's saying, "I'm here. I'm here to tell you, I'm mirroring, I'm mirroring what you are and what we all are, and uh, this is what the world is now." And, 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 and all the badassness in the world is represented right here on this stage. And I'm your boy for that. <laughs> you know, that's basically what he was saying. I mean, isn't uh, it brilliant a... as well to look at that and say, you know, this is the lead black character in, yeah. you know, a world class, amazing production. And there you're coming on stage saying, I'm here. I'm here. There's also, you know, that has a power in itself in that. As Absolutely. Well, it's 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 it's. Uh, it's this character is mirroring what's going on in the world in, in, in racial terms, in political terms, in all kinds of social uh, behavioral terms. He's, he's, he's just saying, this is what you think I am. This is what I think you are. And this is where we got big problems as a society, you know, and, and, and you can take that any way you want, <laughs> you know, kind of vibe. Yeah, and it was a wonderful feeling. Wonderful feeling. How did, the how did the attention of that role then help your further musical uh, music career? Good question. Um, there was a scene in Hair where uh, uh, um, 
the it's a very symbolic scene. There's a lot of the, the this, this this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The show was a symbolic scene where the American flag is uh, uh, placed on the floor of the stage on the ground. And this is a big no-no in American uh, uh, society. You don't do that. <laughs> Uh, we had the the show was shut down for I think two weeks because of this move. Uh, the local councillors and politicians uh, were up in arms, saying, "You, you, you could go to jail. You could go to prison for doing this. We're going to shut the show down and decide what's going to happen at that point." Well, it was uh, a mixed blessing because uh, I, at that point I got uh, a chance to do television in New York. There was a, 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 a nationwide program called the Merv Griffin Show, which uh, asked me to come back because I'd done this show quite a few times before. I came back on the Merv Griffin Show and talked about this uh, incident in Boston uh, that most other cities had overcome with their local uh, politicians and it wasn't a problem anymore. But Boston being the conservative kind of town that it was and in many ways still is, uh, this issue of the flag on the floor uh, was a big deal. So I went on the Merv Griffin show, sang a couple of songs, went back, went back again and again and again, and it started to give me more and more profile in America because uh, this was a liftoff. Uh, and so, as I say, it was a mixed blessing in that sense of the word. So how did that turn into um, sort of suddenly having the UK on your radar? Because <laughs> if, if the 60s were, you know, this whole process uh, that you went through and then a sort of the, the bit of the catapult at the at the end because of hair, and then mm -hmm. came a decade where the UK sort of became more important. So how did that turn into actual record and then how did that turn into coming to the uk okay my time in hair was coming to an end uh i had as i say uh at uh, this exposure uh, at my fingertips with the Murray griffin show and a couple of other television shows in new york city i went to new york again to to, to work in the venues and, and 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 gig around around manhattan um in that uh point in time, I hooked up and we formed a band. It, it was originally formed in Boston. 
uh, and we were working on the east side in Manhattan for Yonks. Um, people would come in to see us and uh, we got uh, made a lot of uh, progress from this venue that we were working in. One of the things that happened there was, uh, 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 I think, uh, record promoter, somebody I was speaking to in between our shows in this venue said to me, uh, you know, there's a, 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 a there's a, an opportunity you may be interested in uh, to go and do represent the US in a uh, song contest happening in Athens. So thought about it. Uh, spoke to the band said I'll, I'll go and do this thing we'll pick up where we left off later on you know we each had our opportunities and uh, we, we chased down our opportunities such as life so i went to athens the long and short of that is that i met uh les reed les reed was one of the judges on the festival on this athens song festival and of course uh, les had written all of the the big hits for tom jones uh, Les Reed approached me after uh, the, 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 the festival was finished and said, come to London. <laughs> I think I may have some songs for you. Or if I don't, I know somebody who does. And uh, I think we can find, uh, if you're up to it, uh, uh, we can find uh, some, some common ground here and maybe get some recording done. Okay. So I went, I finished. <laughs> See how life is, is like a, it's like a, it's like watching a tennis match. Uh, the, the opportunity is flying back and forth and the ones that you're able to grasp as they uh, fly past you are the ones that will either move you on or not. Uh, so I made the decision and it turned out to be a good one to save my pennies, get on the first flight I could with my p saved pennies and get to London. There I met, uh, through Les Reed, I met John Worth, and uh, bless him, uh, he, he, he was a wonderful man. He, he had uh, a spirit like, like Barry Gordy or somebody, you know, that, that's where he was in his mind. I think he wanted that kind of uh, degree of, sure, recognition, but he wanted to achieve that kind of, 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 of stature in the music business where, yeah, he was, uh, he wanted to produce, write songs and so forth. And it was the right person for me to meet in the right place at the right time. So it was one of those occasions. John Worth was a, a pivotal point, pivotal point in my career. He'd also, he'd written songs for Marty Wilde, for Adam Faith. Um, I mean, he'd written for, a, for a, 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 by the time he wrote for you, he'd written for a number of very, very, very well-known um, stars of that that era. Can you remember the first time uh, you heard, and I'm not going to say the name of the track because <laughs> I want you to say it, uh, that you heard that track, you know, that, that, or you saw the music or he, I don't know how it would have worked. Would he have played it to you and said, this is a song I want to sing, you to sing? Um, if we're thinking about going to make you an offer, you can't refuse. <laughs> is that the one? That's um, it. <laughs> yeah, okay. The, the, the film, uh, The Godfather, was big news, of course. It was a big deal everywhere, globally. Uh, John Worth had seen the film. 
I hadn't seen it yet. And so uh, when he brought this idea to me, it was like, uh, okay, you know, the vibe. Uh, he had seen the film and this line kept sticking in his mind, I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse. And uh, he, uh, we met the first time about this idea at uh, the, what was it? it yeah, at, at the recording company, <clears throat> which turned out to be Fly Records, Cube Records. Uh, and, and, and we routined this song with uh, a, a new face, a new guy named Mike Moran. Mike Moran went on and did big work with uh, Freddie Mercury, uh, Barcelona, all of that. Uh, amongst his other successes, he was involved with, uh, heavily involved with uh, uh, Dave Clark's uh, musical time in the West End of London. Uh, so we routined the song and routined it and kicked it around. And it, it was just kind of nice melody, but not really, there was no peaks and valleys. There was, there was not enough, you were speaking about it before, it had that all of that business, the melody down in the low range of my voice. But I'm thinking, well, where can it go to? Where's the ladder up? <laughs> you know? And uh, so Mike and I were sitting around the piano one day and I came up with that falsetto bit and the little um, monologue after this, after the course, did you ever sit waiting, hoping, da, 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 da. and we molded this song out of, uh, out of, uh, yeah, a phrase, gonna make you it off, you can't refuse, but turning it into a love song. And finally, finally, it became the song that people heard on the radio and, uh, and the rest is history. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, for me, I remember when that uh, when that came out in the in in the seventies. I would have been a teenager back then, and for me, it was that the beauty of the vocals on that song, which just sort of I don't know, they shot up into the stratosphere, didn't they? They were just amazing, <laughs> and well, and it was it was a beautiful song. And as you say, it was a phrase that came from the Godfather, but it mm -hmm. was an unexpected twist that also, I think, helped propel it because people knew that phrase, but then yeah. they heard it as a different, as a love song, as you said. So yeah. in some way you, you turned it into something very special. Uh, it was one of those moments, uh, and there've been a few, knock wood, and thankfully, uh, a few moments when I can look uh, at that incident and say, it was an inspired moment. I say inspired from, from whichever uh, way you want to look at it. Uh, it was inspired that John Worth came up with that phrase, came up with that melody. It was inspired that we three, Mike Moran, John and I got together in the first place and came up with something that uh, held water well enough that uh, this far along afterwards, I can look at that and say, yeah, uh, I'm proud of that moment. So, 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 so thankfully the gods were smiling. <laughs> After that, um, and it seems a real shame that you, that in a way you weren't able to capitalize on that enormous success of that song um, to have, you know, a further string of hits. And you went into a period of, of, of being 
um, a session musician of working with other other acts for for quite a for quite a while. And I want yeah. to sort of bring this up to more about the time that we met before. So bringing up mm -hmm. further, and then um, suddenly, and I don't know how it came about because my memory's completely gone on this one but you <laughs> formed a band called London Beat with these three yeah. other guys yeah. so how did that actually come about and and what did you what were your feelings about the band at the beginning do you did you have real positive feelings about it working or did you feel like oh I wonder you know is this me trying again and here we go again will this work do you know what I mean because you've been through such yeah. a lot of that yeah. Okay. Well, uh, once again, to paint the, the the picture of where I was after going to make you enough, you can't refuse. I wanted to, I wanted to continue as a solo artist. That was my endeavor. That was that's what I wanted to be, and uh, and I knew in order to do that, I had to have songs. I did not have at that point in time my own. Uh, uh, I didn't have enough confidence in my own songwriting. Or, 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 or a, a mutual confidence, if you will, with the record company to say, I've got this song and that song and that song as a follow-up to Gonna Make You an Offer or to maybe co-write something with John Worth, for example. None of that really uh, came to be. None of it materialized quickly enough to sustain the success that we had had with Make You an Offer, for example. So there I was, uh, kind of back in the kind of uh, hinderland, if you will, uh, 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 of what's going to happen next? What do I do now? Um, I became a bit uh, disillusioned by the, the atmosphere, uh, the, the, the relationship with the record company that I was dealing with. And uh, at that point, I went back to the US. Uh, I had family by that time, and uh, I went back to the US, uh, enrolled in a local community college, <laughs> started taking some courses in computer programming and so forth to try and just get a new take on where I was. Uh, I, 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 when I speak of com computer programming, I was looking for some kind of programming that would, uh, uh, now there's loads of it. You've got all of these uh, uh, applications by which you can just load up in your uh, uh, in your in your home studio and, and make music on your own. You know, uh, if I'd had something at my fingertips at that point in time, it may be that London Beat may, would not have happened, but there you are. So after a, a time in the US, uh, I started to uh, look at my situation. I was getting fed up with computer programming. It was not what I wanted to be. Uh, I, I'm looking at the news and I see, bing, here's, uh, oh, here's a band called Eurythmics who are on the front, uh, uh, headline news on the Wall Street Journal about this, the, the, the return of the British music invasion to America, blah, blah, blah. That was the essence of this article. And I'm thinking, hmm, okay, uh, so things are cooking back in the UK again, and it may be a time for me to get back there and get something done because it's music and I want to be. Never, I've never denied that fact. Uh, so uh, we sold house in Plymouth, Massachusetts, half an hour from Boston, and uh, arrived back in the UK, bang, with nothing but a dream, empty pockets and a dream, if you will. Uh, I worked in computer programming uh, to try and sort of, yeah, keep body and soul together whilst 
I got back into doing some session work, whatever it took to get connected back in the music scene in the UK. Long story short, uh, Steve, uh, yeah, a uh, couple of friends that I had known prior to moving back to Boston had been working with uh, uh, Paul Young. They were out on tour with Paul Young and they were trying to get me to go out on tour with Paul Young. But as I say, and I underline, now, I don't want to I don't want to be a BV singer. I don't want to be a background singer. I, I want to be a part of something that is uh, ours, mine or ours. If you guys are interested in getting together, maybe we can write some songs. So what happens next? These two guys that I'm speaking of, George Chandler and Jimmy Chambers, and I were doing this uh, television uh, thing. I think it was The Wire, The Wired. Uh, show which came from Newcastle. We trained up to Newcastle, trained back home after it, you know. Was that the tube? The tube. Yeah, the tube. Thank you. Yeah. It was a tube. Thank yeah. you for the correction. It was not the wire, it's a tube. And, and, and so I arrived back home. My phone rings minutes after I'm in the house. And uh, this person is saying, Hey, I just saw you guys on uh, uh, on tube, and, and, and we want to know if you're interested in getting together and writing some songs. That person was Willie M. And so, wow, you know, you think, well, okay, let's, let's listen to it and see if there's anything in it. We met George, Jimmy, and I with Willie M the following night and in London, and uh, the seeds were sown for London Beat from that meeting. So it's amazing how, uh, I don't know, you call it what you want. I call it some kind of uh, 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 a blessing, a blessing that we were able to be uh, in that close proximity with each other. As I say, I just arrived back from, from Boston shortly before this. And, uh, 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 and, and here we are in a situation, I'm, I'm looking at this situation myself and I'm thinking, is this what I want to be? Uh, we have to find out. Don't, don't make any decisions until you've gone through the process and found out, uh, satisfied yourself as to whether or not there's something in it worth pursuing. And it turned out that there was something pursuable in that. Now with, with the biggest hit I've been thinking about you, which was the number one on the billboard charts, in America, I think it was number two in Britain. It was just all over the place. It's this massive, massive hit. But I think it came off the second album. So that yes, and the first did. album wasn't um, an immediate success, but the it's second right. album was. And I want to go back to a point where uh, we met because you were filming the video to I've Been Thinking About You. You may not even remember I was there, but I was. <laughs> I, I remember it clearly because I, I loved it. And, um, <laughs> And I was so shocked because there was this surprise in a sense, and it felt like this video had to be done very quickly because the, the success of the song was so quick. And, yes. and, and you were all taken by surprise and you were all in this, there was this wonderful energy to it that day. And there was this wonderful feeling about it because it was such a beautiful, successful moment. And it felt like, um, you know, particularly uh, uh, for you, um, and I, and I think for George and, and the other Jimmy that 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 it had taken a long, long time to get here, 
and taken yes. a long, long time to have this world success. How yes. was how was that for you? And and did it come as a surprise, or did you actually believe the moment you recorded it, we have something? Well, we believed we had a song that that, that yes, we had uh, 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 something with some strong possibilities as a single, uh, follow up single too. That, uh, if I backtrack for a second, my still my favorite song of all the London beat material we've ever done was 9 a.m. That song for me is uh, represents uh, something that's close to my heart and, and will remain so. Uh, that said, uh, uh, we got a lot of industry uh, uh, positive response from 9 a.m. And I think a lot of that flowed into what happened next. We went back uh, uh, when that first album, Speak, was 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 uh, was uh, was finishing up, you know, and the, we'd gotten as much mileage out of it as we could. Time to do a second album, and we we were speaking with the record company, and they're saying, you know, you need to come more uh, kind of into some middle ground that's radio friendly and blah blah blah, all of that business that record companies rightfully i guess uh put to to their artists uh some of it's questionable in hindsight but there you are um <laughs> we went back in and, and and started this second album uh with a view to yeah trying to come more mainstream if you will and, and get something that had more radio friendliness about it uh, i've been thinking about you happened it was a surprise it was a case of everybody standing up to the microphone, singing their bit of what they thought this track could sound like. Jimmy Chambers stood up to the microphone and sang almost top to bottom what we now know as that song, I've Been Thinking About You. And we looked at each other all and we thought, hmm, yeah, maybe we got something here. Let's, let's, let's pursue this. We finished what we thought was the best demo we could of I've been thinking about you, sent it back to BMG and uh, they listened to it and said, eh, <laughs> you know, uh, <clears throat> try again, uh, try and see if you can push this idea into something uh, more uh, something, whatever. What it sounded like to us was the record company was looking for us to write our first swimming pool, <laughs> if you will, to write your first mansion off this song, you know, and, 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 and it's a mistake because you're reaching for something that is not in your heart and not in your soul and so forth. So long story may, may be short as possible. We pursued the original idea of I've been thinking about you, pushed it around, pushed it around and came back time and time again after maybe 50, 60 tries, came back to the original idea. Uh, uh, we, 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 we embellished the mix as much as we could, sent it back to the record company, and they said, okay, this is it. <laughs> Basically the same. It's like, <laughs> if it's, it's like somebody served you a meal and you say, ah, no, send it back to the kitchen. The, the kitchen sends it back and they may all, they, put a couple more lettuce leaves on the plate or something, you know? <laughs> you know what it's like, Jimmy? It's like the, it's like what William Goldman said about the film industry, no one knows anything. So, yeah. It's true, it's so true. 
and and and, and uh, uh, no business uh, is that more true than in the music business. Uh, it's it is what it is, and in hindsight, you know, uh, it's all you can put it down to a lesson learned here and there. But the, in the final analysis, uh, it's a lesson about the artist trusting their own integrity, trusting their own uh, uh, instincts. And you know, because you're always going to come back to those anyway, if you don't come back to those in the final analysis, you're going to be sorry that you didn't because you, you you'll ended up uh, maybe selling your soul in some way that you, 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 you didn't want to do. So, yeah. Beautifully. I want to just go back to something you mentioned because it's made me curious. It's 9am. I mean, that was much more of a soulful song. What was it about? What, what was close to you about that song? Can you tell me? Because you said it was it something was, very personal. It happened, maybe, it, it was probably the second song, that uh, second idea, song idea that we, we, we worked on. And uh, the, whole, um, the whole situation under which 9am came to be was that <clears throat> William, Jimmy, George and I had met, the, I think maybe the second time we met ever, uh, to to as a to backtrack to the story that I told you about how we met in the first place with William, we we were kicking around this 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 thing and uh, Willie handed me a cassette, <laughs> well, a little uh, really worn out cassette, and he said, "Take this home. There's a couple of those scratchy ideas on here that maybe we can uh, look at next time if, if we meet our next time." So I took it home shoved it into the cassette player and this scratchy little thing was was coming back at me off the uh, off the off the cassette which was the basis of the chord structure <clears throat> excuse me and the 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 atmosphere if you will that became 9 a.m i got on the phone rang willie and said uh if you got anything you can bring tomorrow uh to, 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 to move this idea on structurally, chord-wise, whatever, bring it because I think maybe there's something here. Is I said to him, I remember this, uh, we might have a song here for Tina Turner. <laughs> that was my, uh, uh, I was at, at that point in time, London Beat was not yet an entity. We were just some guys getting together to write songs. And, and, and it, with that in mind, I'm thinking, well, Ah, if this is an idea, who could we give it to? For for for, London Beat had was 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 uh, was just a twinkle in our eye at that point. You know, we were we were songwriters together at that point. So we together the next night, the next time we met, we pushed this idea into what became the ninety percent basis of nine a.m. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful story with this song because the strings and everything was uh, an idea that struck uh, from the man who had done the strings for a lot of the eurythmic, eurythmics uh, material. Uh, here comes the rain again. If you listen to that track and listen to the strings, the, 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 the man who did the string arrangement for that uh, is the same guy. So all of these little stories make for something very precious for me when it comes to certain of our titles and 9am being the precious one for me. I remember an evening after 
that massive success. And I think it was William. This is pretty vague because there was a lot of alcohol involved in this night, <laughs> and and a what? couple of and a couple of buses. Yeah, and oh, I think buses, yeah. do you remember? Yeah, what there was a <laughs> London beat party on two sort of coaches or bus London buses. Yeah, there was two <laughs> London buses, and we and I I need to sort of explain this a little bit to everyone, but it was organised that we went to different people's homes where a party mm -hmm. was already set up. We would yep. go in, the music would go on, we'd have a little party for, I don't know, half an hour, a klaxon would go off, we'd have to go back on the bus, and then we'd go off. And we ended up also at the limelight, and the last place we ended up was some Italian restaurant, I think, which had opened kindly for us to serve us all espressos in the early hours. But this was one of the greatest parties I'd been on in my life, because it was such a lot of fun. Oh, wonderful. Were you there? I was there. <laughs> yeah, I see. I can't remember much about it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was there. I'll tell you. I'll get you once again a tiny bit of backstory about how that idea of doing this bus party thing happened in the first place. We were in uh, what was it? I think uh, Monte Carlo somewhere doing a television, and uh, we <clears throat> they transported us from our hotel to. Uh, place where they were having, you know, the, the record company was having a party for us in this restaurant. And in this restaurant, uh, we, we had a great time. We, we, we were there any number of times when we were in that neck of the woods. But in this restaurant, the musicians would, they had these roving musicians who would come around to your table. And we would, we were laughing by the fact because as the music sped up, your, your eating process got faster and faster. The faster the music got, the faster you ate. So we were, we were throwing these ideas around about what, because if you remember, uh, maybe not because we were drinking so much that night at this party you're speaking of, uh, Sandra Turnbull, William and I, were all Librans. We were born all close around the same point in time in the, uh, late September, early October. And so we decided we were going to have this party <clears throat> to um, to celebrate our, our, our combined birthday, if you will, you know, and, uh, and, and, and a lot of things, a lot of other things at the same time. So I, I can't remember, I think Willie and Sandra and I collaborated about how we're going to do this thing. And somebody said, we could do it on a, on, on a city bus in London, but how are you going to do that? So it boiled down to two buses <laughs> stopping at all these places, a shot of tequila or tin in this place, and then maybe a couple more and a beer to, to, to top it off in there. And so we ended up in this Italian restaurant. It was an amazing night. It was an amazing night. We're still talking about it. It was it was genius. It really was genius. Another thing that happened as well, I believe I trained, this is inverted commas, all of you <laughs> as an interview trainer one evening. You did? Yeah. You did. And you I have did. no idea why, because talking to you today, I should, there was never any reason to be <laughs> to have to oh, train London. <laughs> no, you were all such good talkers. You were always such good talkers. But that was another, that was another really special occasion. That was at William's flat, wasn't it? I think we went yes, there. Sir. Yep, yep. I think uh, if, if memory serves, you were doing uh, some things for MTV. Yeah, that's right. I was presenting on MTV yeah. and interviewing people and they... <laughs> And I think the record company then phoned me up and said, would you like to 
do some uh, interview training with London V. And I was like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Absolutely. fantastic. <laughs> and it was well, fantastic. It was, it, yeah, so it was, it was, um, yeah, we, 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 Sandra was very good at uh, 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 many things, managerial uh, uh, duties, if you will. But she was, she was very good at spotting what needed to be done, what we needed to look like on stage, uh, how we're going to, uh, ideas for the next video, all of these things, which quite honestly, as an artist, I had not ventured into, uh, I didn't feel like it was my territory to, to, to start doing input for, you see, but Sandra encouraged us to, 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 uh, to, to bring our ideas forth and, and, and inject our, our, our own feelings about this, that, or other, uh, aspect of what we were doing as a band. And um, one of those things uh, was to get on board somebody who could give us some instruction, give us some ideas about how to how to respond in an, in an interview situation and uh, not waffle. <laughs> I remember using that. Don't waffle. <laughs> I think I think I said that. The, <laughs> I think the thing was you were a group of four people, and a group is always much more difficult when a question is given to a group it's easier on a one-to-one -one interview basis for the person to answer because then they know they're the one answering. But when it's a group, everyone wants to get their piece in and it's actually sort of paying respect to each other. Anyhow, I'm not going to give you a lesson again because this is ridiculous. No, no. <laughs> but what I want to say, it really pleases me that London Beat or the, the today, new London Beat, which is without William today, mm -hmm. yes. um, and you are still... Um, performing and you're you're out there and you're still singing um can you tell me how it is for you today um to to be still and if i can say you know you're over 80 and you're yes. performing on stage and you have a wonderful energy and charisma and power still today i mean you always Thank had you. it but you really have it today and that pleases me so immensely so how is it for you to be out there touring and playing, still playing gigs? Uh, I can sum it up, I think in a couple of words. Uh, at my age, uh, I get up every day, every morning, I go to bed at night, and the first thing I hear in the morning and the last thing I hear at night is the old man knocking at the door. I've worked out the way that I ain't gonna let him in. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> boom, <laughs> and that's that's um, once uh, I've, I've, I've made that conclusion, uh, the rest it simplifies is it simplifies the process. For if you if you make that decision that, yeah, uh, you get older, but you don't have to get old. You know, you age, but you don't have to. Uh, uh, I'm not ready for the the walking stick quite yet. So if when it happens, I'll, I'll I'll embrace that part of my life. But for now, uh, the energy is still good. I think um, the blessing is, as I look around at uh, the period in time that we had our success with London Beat, and I look at other artists that I can compare our uh, uh, not necessarily the level of success. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how you are perceived 
as time has gone on, how your how your uh, music has, has has stood or not stood the test of time. And one thing that stands out for me as an example is I was looking. Uh, 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 I'm, a, I'm an avid uh, news reader, and especially uh, in the music scene. Uh, after all of these years, Rolling Stone magazine, you know, Rolling Stone, has decided this year that Marvin Gaye should be in the top five of most important singers in of our you know, uh, of our time, of our generation and preceding generation, et cetera. So for that to happen now, what, how long has Marvin Gaye not been with us? And you look at that and uh, I look at it myself and I say, there's a perception here of some, this music is being perceived now to have elevated itself from the time when it was originally uh, recorded and performed. Marvin Gaye has been gone a long time, but his stature in the music business has elevated itself in a way that makes me think, yeah, there's something about longevity that is, uh, is, a, is a blessing. And, uh, and, and, and for as long as I can embrace that, keeping the old man outside the door, <laughs> I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna keep doing it, Steve. Brilliant. Well, I hope that longevity uh, goes for a very, very long time, because one thing I want to say to you is that I really appreciate your talent and your voice and how it's enriched our culture and enriched my life. And it is an absolutely beautiful, beautiful voice. So, Jimmy Helms, thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was so lovely to see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And as they say, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. And uh, I ain't hearing her sing yet. So there's more music coming. And uh, fingers crossed when it's ready, I'll squirt something across to you and, and see what you think of it. But it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. And all the wonderful golden memories of, of those times of flooding back. But let's uh, push it on and see what happens in the future. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.